my concern in, in, in the industry is, in, in our industry, and I'm talking about top-end um, lodges, is that ultimately we are hoteliers. We're innkeepers. Let's not use the word hotel because everybody kind of shudders. Ooh, we're not a hotel, I'm a lodge. We're innkeepers. We welcome guests. We look after them. We take them on great game experiences. We, we delight them with delicious food and wine and with walking and with birding and with all sorts of wonderful safaris. But guests drive our business. And my concern is that uh, many of, of, of the operators that I'm seeing, and I'm seeing it from their marketing messages more than anything, it's varying all about conservation and using guests as a means to an end. Nikki Fitzgerald, the owner of Angama, has spent nearly 40 years developing hotels, restaurants, and over 50 luxury safari lodges across Africa and India. Her North Star, as she likes to call it, is taking care of guests, which means being seriously hands-on, whether that means chopping onions in the Angama kitchen or fluffing cushions in the guest area. In this first episode of our new series, Chai with Angama, Steve Mitchell, co-founder of Angama, chats to Nikki to find out what four decades of experience in hospitality has taught her, what it was like working alongside her husband, Steve Fitzgerald, and her people first approach to business. Hello and welcome to Chai with Angama. I'm Steve Mitchell. I'll be your host today and I'm privileged to be chatting to Nikki Fitzgerald by fellow co-founder of Angama and our chief executive. Welcome, Nikki. Good morning, Mitch. It's lovely to be chatting again. What we do really well in, in, at Angama is, is talk. We love to talk. It's lovely to have you with me again today. And this week, we would like to talk about your history and what it's been like building, gosh, must be 60 lodges now, one to 60, um, and some of the lessons you've learned away, uh, along the way and what you've enjoyed most about that. Let's start at the beginning. How did you get into hospitality in the, in the first place, Nikki? It's not the most obvious career path for many. It was a complete mistake. It was never meant to be at all. We uh, were happily um, following careers in Cape Town. Steve was a chartered accountant and I majored in French and history and was working for a marketing company. And then before I knew it, uh, Steve had made a deal for us to go and rebuild a little hotel on the southern end of Africa. And I said, what do we know about anything? Building, operating, marketing, filling, hosting. He said, well, learn as we go along. And that was in 1981. So what? That's nearly 40 years ago. Is that? Nearly 40 years ago. So, yeah, we're complete. Um, fraud is not a good word to use. We just, we've just kind of learned as we've gone along. But it was, it was a mistake. But a, wonder, a beautiful mistake. I wouldn't have traded my working life for anything, ever. You came from a large family, though. Being, being hospitable and having friends and family and extended relatives in your house, that, that was always natural for you growing up, wasn't it? It was. You know, I can't, it was so long ago, I can't remember. But, yeah, it was. I never, we never went to hotels as children. But I did read as a, as a young girl, as a small girl, of age five or six, my favorite book was Eloise. And for any viewers who, who are watching and know the, the story of Eloise, and she lived in the Waldorf with her nanny, and she picked up the phone and called room service for, for, for anything she wanted. That always sounded to me like, ah, I'd like to do that. I'd like to be Eloise and live in a hotel. So maybe that's where the, the dream of, of, of running hotels and, and lodges started way back when with, with Miss Eloise in New York. Nikki, um, I've heard you say before that the biggest mistake in hospitality is to be undercapitalized. Um, <laughs> if you could give your, your 20, 
I'm not going to say your 20, let's just say your 20 year old self or those, all those years ago, one, one piece of advice before they settle for, for Arniston, what, what, what would it have been? Yeah, I think our, our success at Arniston was that we knew absolutely nothing. I think if you, if you know too much, you worry too much, you think, how are we going to possibly do this? Where are we going to find the money? Where are we going to find the guests? How are we going to find the staff? How will we, how will we do this? So, so I think a certain amount of, of, of craziness and, and ignorance and innocence goes a long way. Um, and courage. I a lot of courage. But, when, you know, when you're young, you just feel you're brave anyway. You just, it's, as you get older, you feel a little less brave. But, you know, you just plunge into something. And, yeah, money, you know, money is always, the, the, enough money is always is, is comforting. But what I have learned over the 40 years, that if you start out with not enough money and, you, and you're passionate enough about what you're doing, You'll find you'll find the the money that you need to to to, to build your dream, um, and just keep at it, and find investors who sh- who share that dream right to their core. They're not coming in just for a um, a quick in out. They're coming because they believe in in what you believe in, and and they will back you. And it actually makes it a little more interesting to be a little short of money. You've got to build more, more smartly. You've got to design more smartly. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's not a bad thing, but you don't want to, 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 grind to come to a grinding halt because you don't have enough money. But if you believe it, I believe you can make it happen. You have to prioritize a little bit better and, and can't do it all. And I, I'm sure there are many cases where lodge owners have started with something and then their success has built another and so and so and so. And then you look at what, uh, what, what is the, what's the current product and it's certainly vastly different from what, uh, what they maybe set out to do all those, all those years ago. Nikki, you've developed lodges in, in just about every wildlife hotspot in Africa, across South Africa, Botswana, Namibia, Zimbabwe, Tanzania, of course, Kenya, as well as some tiger properties in, in, in India, in, in the state of Madhya Pradesh in the, in the middle. Which areas and, and which properties in particular stand out in your, in your memory the most, looking back over all these years? Well, uh, other than Angama, my next most loved lodge that I've developed, built, and ran was the Ngorongoro Crater Lodge in, in Tanzania. It was such a monster. It was like having a baby that was such a handful that you could do nothing but just love it some more. A beautiful property. Uh, we built it in the middle of El Nino. This must be nearly 25 years ago, 27 years ago. And um, the more we built, the more it rained, the more everything slid down. And we just rebuilt it again and again. We were a year late in opening it. We lapped the budget a couple of times along the way. It 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 was it was a seriously challenging uh, uh, project, but it's beautiful. It's I, I love the buildings. I love the Tanzanian staff that work there, and of course the setting on the edge of the the crater is just remarkable. So that's a very special lodge in my heart. Matetsi, um, on the banks of the Zambezi River in Zimbabwe. Uh, also a very special place, probably Steve's most loved, um, most loved lodge. And so nice to see Matetsi back in its glory and um, being lovingly run by a family. That's a real joy. In India, there were four lodges in India. And I think the one in Pana was the one I loved the most. Um, it was just beautiful. But they were all, there were, was another story. Gosh, you could write, a, you could write a, three books on, on building in India. Um, but they were all beautiful. And, of course, again, a different culture, different cuisines, different people, different smells, sounds, and then there were the tigers. 
So that was that was just an exciting project. And they, those four lodges sort of meld into one in, in my memory. How have you managed the balance, I guess, between form and, and function over the years? And, and how important is the wisdom of your development partners and, 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 the, and the operators in that, in that process? I think the, the team who are working on it, both the, 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 the standing team and the operation team, the design team and the operation team, need to have a long, hard chat around a table before you even begin. What are the non-negotiables on form and what are the non-negotiables on function? And once you've had that, that, that discussion, I think the, the project becomes much easier. If you start arguing along the way, uh, it just gets too emotional, and especially if things are running a little late or running over budget, get, get, become like-minded before you start. And ultimately, what is, the, what is best for the guest? And I think if you use the guest as, as the North Star, is, is, does this work best for the guest? A brown carpet, not that we have brown carpets in our lodges, but a brown carpet doesn't show dirt, but it's not best for the guest and it's certainly not, not good design. So, so, what, so, that's, so use the guest as the, as the judge on, on, on that never-ending tension between form and function. Um, I'm, I sit probably more on the function side because I'm an operator um, and I'm quite persuasive when it comes to dealing with d- designers and architects. Oh, everything might I add, not just architects. And- <laughs> oh, thank you, Mitch. Um, but I think it's important to to also take a few risks on the on on the design and say, okay, fine. This otherwise, if we if we just go for function, everything will just look and feel the same. So you also have to trust your design team to push the envelope, but always um, what is in the best interest of the guests. And if something gets broken and tatty too quickly because it was all about um, form and, 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 and couldn't sustain, then that's not good for the guest either. So just use the guest. Use, stick the guest up in your, in your design room, wherever you are, put a, put a picture on the wall and say, keep referring back to the guest. Does this work for you? You're definitely advocating a, a guest-first, guest-focused approach rather than build something beautiful and they will come. No? Whew. You've got to build for guests, but you also have to remember, no matter how beautifully you build it for guests, they won't automatically come. And that there lies the biggest challenge in our industry is to build, is to, you, you put you pour your heart and soul into building something extraordinary. And you think, well, I love it so much. Everybody will love it so much. And by next week we'll be full. It just doesn't work that way. You have to earn every guest one guest at a time through a great guest experience with your first guest, great experience, guest experience with your hundredth guest, with your thousandth guest, your two thousandth guest. Every experience has to be perfect because at the end of the day, it's our guests who will get us more guests, whether they, 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 they hear about us on, on, on TripAdvisor or magazine, they will check on us before they spend all this money to come to Africa. So you, it's a slow process and you have to have the courage and the, and the the you know, the courage to, to to stand firm while you build up those guests one at a time. It's the hardest part, Mitch. By far, it's the hardest yeah. part. It's, and it's we've got hard. yeah, we've got so many wonderful lodges in Africa. The other thing is just remember, you're just one part of many, not the only one. People are not thinking, oh, I'm going to jump on a plane and come to Angama for two weeks. Not at all. And um, there are lots of beautiful properties right across the continent. And how lucky we are to work in this industry. Yeah, you know, travelers are certainly sport for choice these days compared to 30, 40, 50 years ago. And the internet is also democratized information. And I'm going to save the discussion on the on the distribution chain maybe for another for another chat because that's a complicated 
um, topics on its own. And, and I want to shift to a slightly more, more personal level, I guess, and, and that is you develop all of these projects together with your late husband, Steve, who was, who was our founder and a, and a mentor to me on, on many levels as well. And I think between the, the two of you, a very formidable team and well-recognized across the industry and, and broadly across the globe. My question for, for couples that work together, myself in, in included, but I'm, there's certainly others out there, is how did you manage to both keep a happy marriage and, and work together so successfully? Because that is not an easy feat to accomplish, especially over so long, so many countries, so many projects across different um, functions. Um, what, what was your secret sauce and, and, and how did you get there? <laughs> oh. It's, it's, it's all I know was working alongside Steve. So I don't know what it must be like to be in a marriage where, where one half of the, the, the partnership goes one way and the other the other way. I, I, I would imagine that would be very difficult. But So working together is, is, is what we know. We had different skills. Um, he was very strong on, on anything uh, financial, numerates, uh, and systems, and very good with staff fantastically good with stuff. And I um, was much stronger with, with guests, hospitality and, and marketing. So we, we didn't overlap too much. Every so often um, he would tell me that he was a wonderful um, hotelier and I would have to remind him that he absolutely <laughs> was not and, and, and lock him up in the office. There's some famous stories about Steve and guests and I won't share those now because it would, he's not here to defend himself. But so we had, we had complementary skills. I think that was good. The other the other practice that we we had was that there really isn't a line if you if you marry if you work together there isn't a line between work and, and home. It just goes on all day. I think where we did put a stop to it was three o'clock in the morning, jabbing one or the other in the ribs and saying, "I've just had an idea." That's not smart because that's three o'clock in the morning. But and our, our daughters also grew up know, grew up knowing that this was a family business, and in a family business you talk business all the time. And um, especially if, if, if it's a startup, you're entrepreneurs, you know, there's always a, a drama going down somewhere, you go on holiday, the phone is ringing, the emails are coming in, and, and you can't be resentful about it because it is what it is. And, yeah. and, don't, and don't try and say, okay, well, we're not going to talk about, about business at all tonight. Okay, well, that's our life. Our life was, 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 were these beautiful places we created and, and we love talking about them. So, uh, yeah, and I think arguments. Uh, some, I watch all the youngsters around me who are married and, and I see the tension and I smile secretly to myself and say, well, you'll work it through. Um, try and, and I think compete, competition is a good thing in a marriage when you're working together, but um, not to the detriment of the marriage. So you've got to know where to say, okay, actually he or she's better than me than this and, and, and I'll give them credit for that idea. Um, otherwise, we, we, we bumbled through, Mitch, and I think marriage is a lot of bumbling through, whether it's working together or just bringing up children together or just putting up with each other. And um, we were lucky. It was a, it, I wouldn't have, again, I wouldn't have not worked with Steve my whole life for anything. It was, it was a joy. Let's go back to, to Tanzania, Nikki, the, our, our neighbours just south of, of Angama, because I think the Northern Circuit, which CC Africa at the time developed there between the Crater Lodge, which you spoke about earlier, and Grumetti and Kleins and Lake Manyara was, was quite influential in developing the high-end circuits uh, in that country. Um, and those properties have all welcomed thousands of, of guests over the years. What was East Africa like um, back then 
when you, you know, we're essentially taking the Londolozi high-end model from South Africa and, and exporting it to, to East Africa. How did it feel to be, to be doing that? What was the reception like? And I'm sure there was, it was a bit of pioneering, pioneering time needing lots of courage. Well, the, the, the destination itself is extraordinary, the Northern Circuit of Tanzania, the diversity of, of, of habitat and experiences and, and the beauty of, of, of nature is, takes your breath away. We, I don't think we, again, being pioneers, we didn't really research too deeply what we were going into. We just thought, oh, we could do this. We've done it in South Africa. We'll just jump on a plane and do it in, in, in Tanzania. Well, the first thing that happened was you couldn't fly to Tanzania. So we had to fly to Kenya, take a bus down through the border, get to uh, through Namanga, get to Arusha, and then take another car and drive and drive and drive. Eventually, we we bought a 206, a little Cessna 206, and Charlie Charlie wow. Tango, and we flew around in that in clouds, through mountains, through rainstorms. We were crazy. We should never have done that. Because that it, the connectivity wasn't there. There were no planes yeah. you could just jump on and go from place to place. You either chartered a plane or you went by road. Um, and again, we thought, you know, we know what guests love and the animals are remarkable. Well, let's do it. I, the biggest learning for me was re-educating the Tanzanian um, tour operators because they were not used to, to, to these high rates. I remember one famous moment when a, a very well-known um, uh, travel personality in Arusha called me for lunch and said to me, Nikki, I see that your rate for the Ngorongoro crater is $350. So, and, it, and he had been paying under the old regime before we knocked that lodge down. I think he'd been paying $75 a night. So it was quite a big jump for him. Well, he, That's quite he was, a big it was quite a big jump. So he looked at me and he said, I see from the picture. Now, he never came to the lodge to see what we built, but he was an expert. He said, I see from the pictures that you've got roses in the bathroom, big bunch of red roses over the bath. If you take the roses out of my client's bathroom, can we drop the rate by $20? <laughs> uh, I said, you know what? Um, no. Uh, if you can't fill it at three fifty, I will. Nikki, how do, you, how do you contrast those times with the opportunities which you face today in East Africa and I guess in particular in, in Kenya? How do, which direction do you see the you see the lodge development um, side going, I guess, and, and where do you see some opportunities? I'm quite delighted that Kenya was lagging behind Tanzania, Botswana, and South Africa because that gave us an opportunity to build a beautiful Angama. If Kenya had been um, where Tanzania was 20 years ago, when we started six years ago, um, that beautiful site would have been long gone. And, yeah. and so I'm quite happy with that. Again, um, I think the market is changing, Mitch, and I think going forwards, especially coming out of the pandemic, guests are going to want smaller, more intimate, uh, more bespoke travel experiences, whether it's in Kenya, Tanzania, or in Australia. And and the the big, the, the tours, set departure tours, the scheduled tours, the kind of bus tours maybe in Europe, but we don't have them in, 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 in Kenya. We certainly have them in South Africa. I think those are going to, that industry is going to be harder to, to harder to come back. Um, so top end, small, bespoke, 
where the guest really knows that no matter what he's paying, he's getting absolute value for his dollar and the full attention from, mm. from everybody. So Kenya for us is open fields running at the moment. We're looking at some, 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 some new opportunities there. And it is the most beautiful country. And it, it's quite scalable. Tanzania, if you think of Tanzania, I mean, if you want to get to places like um, Ruaha or you want to get to um, Mahali, this is big, big charters, big distances. I mean, Tanzania is a big country. Kenya Safari is all quite scalable. I mean, if you absolutely had to, you could drive the whole thing. Nobody does that, of course. But you can, you can get to, to, to Laikipia with ease. You can get down to Amboseli with ease. You can get to the coast with ease. And of course, you can get to the, to, to the beautiful Mara with ease. And that makes it so compelling is that you can get a diverse um, guess, uh, itinerary um, in, in, in 10 days without spending enormous amounts of money on charter or huge amounts of, of, of time getting from A to B. So it's, it's quite small in a way, Kenya. It's almost like Botswana. It's quite compact. Um, obviously, there's the northern part of Kenya where Tokana is, and I mean, that's huge and vast and empty, but, yeah. but where our guests would travel. So I'm excited with our Angama Safaris team and the, and the journeys they're putting together for guests. There's some, some, exciting, there's some exciting places, and there's also some holes to be plugged. So we'll see who will be plugging those holes. Maybe it'll be us. Mickey, you, you recently wrote an opinion piece that certainly resonated with me about the importance of putting people first. Would you like to elaborate a little bit more on, on what you meant by that? Um, Mitch, you know, I'm a grumpy old maverick, so I'm allowed to, I'm allowed to say the opposite to everybody else. My concern in, in, in the industry is, in, in our industry, and I'm talking about top-end um, lodges, is that ultimately we are hoteliers. We're innkeepers. Let's not use the word hotel because everybody kind of shudders. Ooh, we're not a hotel, I'm a lodge. We're innkeepers. We welcome guests. We look after them. We take them on great game experiences. We, we delight them with delicious food and wine and with walking and with birding and with all sorts of wonderful safaris. But guests drive our business. And my concern is that um, many of, of, of the operators that I'm seeing, and I'm seeing it from their marketing messages more than anything, it's varying all about conservation and using guests as a means to an end. And I think that is disrespectful to guests. Um, we all want to make an impact. All of us want to see that these beautiful places survive for our children, their children, and their children's children. But it starts with guests. And I think guests pick up quite quickly if they feel they're being used as a means to an end and then being badgered for donations and support and, and help us with this and pay for that school and plant a tree and hug a rhino. And, and really all they're wanting, they come to us for a holiday. And the, 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 the most important part of that holiday is the staff, people again, who will take care of those guests. Are we treating our staff um, in, with the best possible um, uh, approach? Are they being well accommodated? Are they being well trained? Are they being well paid? Are there, are there benefits? And this is being thrown wide open during COVID. So many staff, I know in the Mara, I don't know about other parts of Africa, um, from lodges that were sent home on, on unpaid leave, indefinite unpaid leave. I mean, that's um, somehow you just have to well, start where we started with, with money. Somehow you just have to find the money to keep your staff on, on a payroll, not their full pay, but something they can go home and put food on the table for their children. So it's all our business is all about people. And then it's about the, the third leg of those people, so guests, staff, and communities. Communities are 
as critical as, as, as conservation and much harder. You know, you can go out there and collar a, uh, a lion like we did in Angama last week and you can do the research and we've got old Fitz the Elephant collared and we can do the research. That's, that's quite easy to do because you do it and you get on with it and it's wonderful. People, people are messy. People are complicated. And when you've got uh, many, many, many neighbours as we have, sit under a tree, talk it through, because together you're going to be able to con conserve these wild places. You can't do it without the community, without the guests and without the staff. So it's all about people. I'm going to leave things there. Thank you very much for the opportunity to, to interview and ask you some questions and for sharing your, your wisdom. I, I, there certainly aren't many who have achieved and created as much as you have um, over the years. And uh, it's been a privilege to, to, to ask you to share those stories today and to be part with, uh, with you for part of that journey. So thank you. Thank you, Mitch. And thank you for everything. And yes, one day I will write a book. Maybe. <laughs> While we eagerly await Nikki's tell-all book, Please tune in to our next episode. We'll be hearing from Mark Goss, the CEO of the Mara Elephant Project, about the way technology has changed conservation and how they go about influencing the behavior of the largest land mammals in the world. This podcast was brought to you by Angama. You can listen to Chai with Angama on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. To see the video version of this and other interviews, please subscribe to Angama's YouTube channel.